0: Would you be willing to pay two hundred and seventy-five dollars for an extra eleven minutes of supply a year? Oh no! no. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> we say that the reliability improvements um, don't appear to justify the cost, um, and uh, that therefore this was this looks to have been both a major driver of the cost, but also not an
1: appropriate justification of it. Welcome to the Grattan Report podcast. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing a sustainable electricity network for Australia. As we've discussed previously on the podcast, poor decisions by some state governments has driven excessive investment in power networks over the past decade. In fact, state governments spent up to $20 more than they needed to on the electricity grid. Consumers in those states are now paying $100 to $400 more for electricity each year. It's a problem for consumers now and in the future if nothing changes. And governments need to take responsibility for fixing it, drawing a line under the past and working towards a more sustainable electricity future. Grattan's newest energy report, Down to the Wire, a sustainable electricity network for Australia, takes a look at what's gone wrong with our power grid and makes a number of recommendations on what governments should do going forward. Joining us today to talk through the new report is senior associate and co-author of the report, Kate Griffiths. Welcome back to the podcast, Kate. Thanks, Megan. Kate, the report indicates there's been significant overspend and overgrowth of Australia's power grid. Just how big is the problem and why has it occurred?
0: Yeah, the report's all about spending too much on this electricity grid. And the electricity grid we're talking about is the one in southern and eastern Australia. So all states in the national electricity market, um, excluding Western Australia and the Northern Territory. And the grid was originally valued uh, in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And since then, uh, it has grown, um, its book value has grown faster than customer growth, faster than demand for electricity, um, and even faster than peak demand. So we see this um, value of assets has just far exceeded any of those sorts of indicators we might expect would justify the value. So that would suggest that we've built more assets than we needed and that we've built them too big. So things like larger substations and transformers than are actually required today. Um, And we've probably upgraded infrastructure maybe sooner than we needed to, as well as potentially spending more than we needed to in those upgrades. So if we look since 2005, where the data is better, but also where most of the growth has actually happened, the grid was valued at about 50 billion in 2005, and today it's 90 billion. So that's 40 billion in growth, and 40 billion in growth above consumers purchasing power, so factoring in inflation. Of that 40 billion, we say in the report that up to 20 billion was excessive. So consumers aren't actually getting anything extra for that extra investment, but they're paying for it. And we can see that the service hasn't really changed a lot over time. It's the grid that's become more expensive.
1: And in the report, it seems to be that this has been concentrated, that the cost to consumers, if you will, has been concentrated in New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania. Why is that?
0: Yeah, so it's really interesting that um, in New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania, nearly all of the excess growth occurred. So of the 20 billion, uh, 18 and a half was in New South Wales and Queensland mm. and only 750 million in Tasmania. But on a per customer basis, that actually is quite a high... Um, amount for Tasmanian customers to be paying so um, nearly all the growth is in these three states and these are the three states where all the electricity networks were publicly owned so New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania all the networks in those states uh, were publicly owned at the time that most of this investment happened they are still publicly owned in Queensland and Tasmania uh, but in New South Wales, uh, three of the four businesses were recently privatised. So, uh, but but these three states have had these publicly owned networks, and that really um, raises the question: why would why would public ownership lead to so much overinvestment? What's the difference there from other states like Victoria and South Australia, where we haven't seen the same thing? Um, and those states, the businesses are privately owned. So, there's a couple of reasons. There's a simpler one and a more complex one. Starting with the the simpler reason is really just that. Government ownership um, can mean that the the business has a number of objectives besides just least cost solutions. So um, that might be things like job creation. It might be reliability of the network. Governments have particular interest in reliability because, um, as we all know, obviously politicians get blamed if anything goes wrong. So um, certainly government um, owned businesses are more likely to be concerned about those sorts of things. Mm. So when you've got these other objectives competing with cost, you might end up spending more than you needed to. Um, to achieve those other public goods, but at the cost of the electricity consumer. The more complex reason for why public ownership might have been a factor is to do with the financial incentives of the business. So essentially, the state government, as the owner of the business, receives um, a dividend like any private owner would, but they also receive an additional fee from the business, which is related to the fact that the business can get cheaper borrowings because they're backed by government. So public business can borrow more cheaply than a private business can. And the regulatory system neutralizes this through a competitive, what they call a competitive neutrality fee. And that fee, instead of just benefiting the consumer directly,
1: is actually paid to the state. Mm. So the state government benefits both ways. Mm. So then how did we end up with such an excessive overspend on the grid? Like, where did that money go?
0: Good question. Yeah, it's actually something that we've spent a lot of time trying to piece through um, and figure out. And there are a lot of different things that that, um, networks spent the money on. Um, And there are a few broader reasons, it seems, why we might have seen so much overbuild. So one of them is that um, expectations for demand in the early 2000s was that it would keep growing and growing so there would be always be more need for electricity and actually that hasn't been the case we've seen things like energy efficiency come into play we've seen people install solar panels and and, um, source their own electricity elsewhere and so demand for electricity has really slowed since the late 2000s and if networks um, built expecting demand to keep on growing, they may have overbuilt for demand that never came. Mm. So that, that looks like one of the factors here. It, it's not enough to explain all the growth. When we look at what expectations were at the time for demand mm. and we compare expected demand to their actual growth, it still doesn't explain most of the investment, particularly mm. in New South Wales. Mm. Um, it's more of an explanatory factor in Queensland. Mm. But... Um, So that that would be part of the explanation for why we've seen so much overbuild, but it's definitely not the whole explanation. Another reason networks might have spent quite a lot is that it looks like they've done a lot of asset replacement in the last decade, and um, that's certainly uh, an important part of maintaining the network. Uh, These assets tend to have um, pretty long life, um, decades, 50 years-ish, but the sort of timing in which you replace them can be um, potentially all can be potentially quite lumpy you could end up replacing quite a lot of assets in a short period of time Mm. Um, So we understand that but then when we actually look at the data of how old were the assets before most of the spend occurred um, So the networks that spent um, Quite a lot in that period after 2006 particularly between 2006 and 2014 actually had an average age of assets younger than most of the other networks in the national electricity market. So that really poses the question whether that asset replacement was needed um, at that time or Mm -hmm. whether it was premature um, and whether so much needed to be done in such a short space of time. And um, one of the reasons they might have chosen to replace in this period is that there were actually um, Uh, strong incentives to invest at the time. So then that really comes back to the regulatory framework in which the network businesses were operating. And it looks like we didn't get that right. Essentially, in the early 2000s, Energy institutions and state governments were worried about underinvestment. As as I said before, demand was expected to keep increasing and and there was this fear that um, businesses might not invest sufficiently to Mm. meet that. Um, So they put in place um, quite a generous framework um, that allowed um, not just um, investment uh, more investment to be made in the following years than had ever been made before, uh, but also for any overspend on that to be rolled directly into their asset value going forward. So, Network spent quite a bit in that period and were encouraged to do so. Mm. But probably the main reason we see was the introduction of reliability standards in the mid two thousands. So New South Wales and Queensland introduced quite prescriptive reliability standards at that time that other states didn't introduce. So that sort of helps to explain some of why um, those networks might have built so much more than other networks. Mm. And these standards, um, whilst you know reliability sounds like a good thing and certainly and certainly is, these standards didn't look at what the consumer would be willing to pay for. So you can improve reliability at a cost, and the question is whether for the consumer um, they're willing to pay that much more for for the improvement in reliability. So how many extra minutes of supply a year Um, is hundred dollars worth for example Mm. and what we see in terms of these reliability standards was that they didn't factor that in and also that they were quite prescriptive about how reliability should be achieved they specified the inputs so how much redundancy should be built in the network Mm. rather than say the outcomes so what reliability the consumer should experience and in doing that they made these sort of legally binding requirements for networks to build substantial extra um, assets redundancy to protect against even some of the most unlikely events so some redundancy in the network some backup infrastructure is essential Mm. um, to maintain reliability Uh, it's a question of of whether you protect against every possibility or whether you only protect against the most likely ones and obviously obviously the more you protect against the more assets you need to build the more cost um, there is to the consumer. So these standards appear to have driven quite substantial capital investment. If you look at the capital investment immediately prior to the standards versus the capital investment immediately post the introduction of those standards, um, it jumps up, it doubles basically, investment doubles. So it's um, it seems like these standards drove significant capital investment, augmentation of assets, and they were not because they didn't factor in the value to the consumer. They were not necessarily something that the consumer was bought into at the time. Mm. Then when we look today at at what value they delivered to the consumer, even if the consumer didn't necessarily buy into it at the time, um, it's highly questionable whether even today, looking back, they would consider that that was value for money. There's specific networks um, did achieve improvements. Some didn't. So some actually went backwards in terms of the number of uh, minutes of unplanned outages or consumer experiences each year. Wow! Exactly. So, <laughs> um, so it, you know, it's hard to see how it's justified. The biggest improvement um, was in um, the regional networks, and um, one of those managed to achieve uh, an hour forty of additional supply per year. So that's you know that's a noticeable improvement potentially but you know at a at, at a cost, cost of a few hundred yeah. dollars it, it's questionable whether the consumer would want to pay that and then there are some others that are that really an just LR look 40 outrageous per consumer
1: or just an okay yes. 40 okay right as yeah.
0: an average across consumers sure sure okay uh, but then there are some other ones that are that that are just outrageous i mean would you be willing to pay $275 for an extra 11 minutes of supply a year?
1: Hell no. (laughs) Exactly. So (laughs) we say
0: that the reliability improvements um, don't appear to justify the cost um, and uh, that therefore this was, this looks to have been both a major driver of the cost, but also not an appropriate justification of it.
1: Yeah. Can I ask, just going back quickly to the um, premature replacement of aging assets, has there been any explanation given for that. Like the conspiracy theorist in me says this was an opportunity for friends of people in power to potentially have an opportunity to make some money. (laughs) I think this comes back to
0: the regulatory incentives at the time. The framework was set up by state governments who are then going to financially benefit from those investments in those two ways we talked about before yeah um, they're also gaining politically because you know what extra investment in these assets might prevent a blackout that embarrasses a politician mm. those sorts I've of been things been economic all...
1: stimulation as well in a way. exactly yeah, you might the, be supporting economic we were, growth yeah. training
0: more apprentices sure. Um, Etc. So, um, so it's know, jobs a politically growth.
1: clever move potentially. Exactly. Yeah. Particularly
0: because yeah. the cost impact of that, obviously energy affordability is, is politically a, a very sensitive issue as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the cost of that um, plays through over a much longer period period of time and and sort of tends not to be noticed for until a few years later mm-hmm. so there is that element of um well m- maybe it won't be in my time mm. and in, in fact yeah we're looking at this now we're not the first to look at this question of overinvestment in the grid others have called for action on this um in the last few years as well um but certainly we're looking at it now more than a decade afterwards mm. and saying enough is enough um but those governments are no longer in power and and times have changed
1: yeah Interesting. So uh, this kind of rolls on from that last question in a way. It it is human nature to want to blame someone when things go wrong. Uh, So my million dollar question is whose fault was it?
0: So there's a number of parties at fault in this. um, And essentially, you know, the businesses made these investments, the regulator approved these investments, and often these investments were in response to standards set externally by state government. Uh, But when we actually just look at which businesses were involved, at how much overinvestment there was and the timing of that, it's really the state governments that have to take responsibility here because they owned the investments at, sorry, they owned the businesses at the time Mm. the investments were made and they set the standards that um, then drove the capital expenditure. Mm. Um, So it's whichever way you look at it, it's actually very difficult to separate those two things and put a how much of that 20 billion was on one or the other yeah but whichever way you look at it um, it's comes back to state governments having to take responsibility for this so it, it's also an opportunity for state governments here because this is the New South Wales Queensland and Tasmanian state governments who now actually have an opportunity to address energy affordability in their state I mean this is something that uh, is impacting customers as you said in your intro, sort a of hundred to four hundred dollars um, on their annual bill mm. and um, It's something where, uh, for Queensland and Tasmania, those governments still own those businesses and could actually make a a business decision and a political decision to revalue their assets that would benefit consumers.
1: Mm. So that probably moves very nicely into my next question. The report makes a number of recommendations on how to go forward from here. What, to start off with, what should state governments in particular do? Right, so we recommend that state governments
0: who still own their network businesses should revalue Mm. the regulatory asset base of those businesses. And um, the recommendations are made probably a little bit more complex by the fact that New South Wales has already privatised some of its um, businesses. So um, in those cases, we would suggest doing something a little bit different because for a government to revalue the assets of a private business opens a whole can of worms Mm -hmm. um, that, that... Has implications for consumers, not just on those networks, but on all networks in the national electricity market. So it would affect consumers in Victoria that otherwise unaffected. Um, And so in order to deal with that, we make a different recommendation for those ones. But for the Queensland and Tasmanian businesses that are still in public ownership, it's relatively straightforward. The state government um, owns the business um, and can make and is the sole owner of the business and can make that decision. The impact on them is that it will, f- the state government would have to forego future revenue. So there is a revenue impact. Um, that sounds like something they're definitely going to want to do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it is definitely a, It's a relatively uh, simple solution, but it is a tough political call. Yeah. There is no doubt about that. Um, it's a little bit more complex for the recently privatized businesses in New South Wales. So there's this four network businesses in New South Wales, one of which is still fully publicly owned. Yep. So we'd make the same recommendation as for Queensland and Tasmania for the essential network, the country network. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other three where that are that are um, partly or fully privatized um, because of this sort of can of worms associated with with a write down of a private business, um, we recommend actually that the government could simply provide a rebate to consumers that has the same effect. So a rebate, um, essentially a refund to consumers for this past overinvestment mm. that depreciates over time as the assets do, would have the same effect. It is a less permanent solution. So there's always the risk that uh, the priorities of future governments change Um but it is it would achieve the same effect without um, disrupting the regulatory
1: framework for all
0: businesses in the national electricity market.
1: So uh, I guess what what that sounds like to me though is obviously the government in both of those cases is losing losing revenue or or it's coming out of the budget. Is is this just shifting from paying it as a consumer at that end part where I'm paying my bill? to paying it as a taxpayer? It is,
0: yes. So the reason why that is worth doing um, is that the tax system is a little bit different from the consumption, from the way we consume electricity. So how much each individual pays as a consumer versus as a taxpayer might be quite different. Mm. Um, But it is also worth doing because um, the cost of past overinvestment is built into today's bills and into bills for the next few decades. Um, That actually makes it the grid more expensive than it needs to be. It means that consumers um, receive a price signal that might encourage them to make other investments to go off grid or to uh, reduce their reliance on the grid. Uh, So solar panels, batteries, Mm. diesel generation, backup diesel generation, all sorts of other kinds of investments. And the thing here is that the total cost um, of electricity supply increases on the basis of these investments if those investments are inefficient and we don't know whether or not they're efficient unless the price signal clearly communicates that so Mm -hmm. right now the price signal is higher than it should be so there are other problems here I mean we don't pay for electricity in the most efficient way Uh, it would be better if we were paying um, for electricity if we were paying more for electricity at times when the grid is under strain and less for electricity at other times when actually there's plenty of capacity Um, to go around because the grid itself is there, the poles and wires are already built, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not actually how we currently pay for electricity. So that's another problem and that is certainly one that we uh, make recommendations on as well. Um, But even if you fix that problem, you've still got this overinvestment, this legacy problem um, in the total amount that consumers are paying and it's driving people off the grid or to make alternative investments that may not be um, the least cost choice for them
1: if it wasn't in the bill. Sure, that makes sense. So more broadly, other than just what state governments in particular should do, what, what policy changes need to be made to stop this from happening again or from continuing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first things we really need to do is explicitly address the future risk of stranded assets. So this is that uh, we know that the location of um, energy sources is changing, the grid might need to be reconfigured to allow for you know, new renewable energy zones. That also means that places like the Hunter Valley or Trobe Valley that have historically generated electricity for the grid, um, you know, as more generators retire, those areas will be needed less. So you've got assets that are built to service one area that will need to be servicing another area in future. You've got um, New technologies emerging, you've got consumer preferences changing um, in terms of wanting to generate their own electricity on their own roof. Um, and all of these things mean that there's actually a really good chance that in future some of the network that exists today will no longer be needed. Mm-hmm. Some of the things we build in future may no longer be needed. <laughs> um, and also that. Um, the grid even that we've already got might be used differently. Mm. So I think the problem here is just that right now, um, all of these uncertainties um, create risk and all of that risk is on consumers. Right. So network businesses don't currently take um, that sort of stranding risk and in mm. future, um, the framework needs to explicitly allocate that risk. Right. So one way to do that would be to um, designate a share that is held, that is covered by businesses and a share that is covered by consumers. Mm. And in a way, in doing that, um, it does increase costs in a number of ways. It increases um, in, because it becomes a riskier investment. Investors um, need to be compensated for that, so there's extra costs there. Um, but it is still worth it for the consumer um, going forward in the sense that Um, If businesses are taking on more risk than they do today, then they'll actually have a much bigger incentive to look for um, non-network solutions to problems, to think about how you might um, minimise network costs going forward. And I guess the framework um, that has existed in the past has been one that's really encouraged investment. So it's about rethinking that framework um, Mm. to consider the possibility that we'll have more stranded assets in future.
1: Mm. Thank you so much for your time today, Kate. To download a copy of the full report we've discussed today, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. As always, you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, reports and events by subscribing to our Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then do help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening.